0: Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture and a person hopeful about the forever green bioeconomy. Forever green bioeconomy. Remember that phrase. Um, That's the topic of today's show, and we're very pleased to have uh, Nick Jordan, professor of agronomy and co-director of the Forever Green program with us. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Nick.
1: Thank you very much. It's great to be talking.
0: Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I um, have been at the University of Minnesota in the College of Agriculture for about 30 years. I'm from Minnesota originally. My, um, my maternal grandparents were, uh, my grandfather was one of those uh, so-called Russian German folks, as they call them in South Dakota. The, these are uh, Mennonite, uh, typically wheat farmers that uh, were expelled from um, from uh, Ukraine uh, Mm. by the Russian government uh, in the uh, latter part of the 19th century, and lots of them settled in the Midwest Mm -hmm. and Kansas and also the Dakotas and resumed their German speaking and wheat farming ways. So I have some, um, some agricultural roots in that way. And uh, I would describe myself um, academically as an agroecologist. And that means that I'm interested in um, understanding agriculture holistically mm-hmm. with the understanding that agriculture on the one hand is a matter of ecology in the sense of what uh, the systems of the living world do together, but also understanding there's a culture of agriculture and of course an economy And that um, the the viewpoint of agroecology is that to uh, address uh, the the big challenges that we face around agriculture, you really have to deal with both the ecological side of agriculture and the human, social, cultural, political dimensions of agriculture. And you have to view those as as, uh, interconnected. And so that's certainly the stance that we take in the Forever Green project.
0: So what is, tell us a little bit uh, about the Forever Green. Well, what does it mean, Forever Green?
1: So Forever Green is a way of describing a certain kind of agriculture that um, we also call continuous living cover agriculture. And the basic premise of that is that you have a living and um, fruitful Crop plant growing uh, across as much of farmland and as much of the annual cycle as possible. So, um, the uh, general idea of that is that um, in order to protect the vital resources of soil and water and biodiversity that uh, we depend on, humanity depends on for food. We must have um, living plants, and we must have living plants um, partnering with soil. So there's a fundamental partnership between soil organisms and plants, specifically their roots, that is um, the basis of good and healthy soil. Um, And soil, of course, is critical. Healthy soil is critical to taking good care of water. And, um, healthy soil itself is habitat for a great deal of biodiversity, but also, um, having living plants across the annual cycle is crucial to taking good care of biodiversity in farms, landscapes. So this idea of continuous living cover is, yeah. um, is, is really a very uh, crucial element of the future of agriculture in, in our understanding and lots, lots of other people feel that way too. And so the forever green project is all about advancing that kind of agriculture. A critical premise of the whole project, Laura, is that there must be a viable economy of forever green or continuous living um, covered type agriculture. The issue is that some of the strategies that we have right now for building continuous living cover and agriculture don't really are are, are just very difficult economically. And the one that I would highlight especially is that, um, we um, have um, the, the strategy of cover cropping. A cover crop by definition does not produce any commodity that you harvest. And so cover cropping is something that you grow in between crops that you do harvest. That's the definition of a cover crop. And cover crops uh, do good things for soil and water and wildlife, but they don't um, provide economic benefits quickly for farmers. They do over time. Um, and that just makes the economics of that very difficult. Another example would be the conservation... Um, Programs that we have that basically involve taking land out of farming, taking lands <coughs> um, that, that farmers uh, produce things on, farmers call those working lands, and taking them out of um, working farmland. So things like the Conservation Reserve Program. And those also um, have economic problems, which is basically that um, society can't pay farmers enough. For those, uh, for those lands. So we have economic problems with a lot of the strategies that we use to provide continuous living cover right now. So continuous living cover is really, really important, really, really powerful, but has a problematic economy. So that's the whole premise of the Forever Green Project. Can we develop crops that uh, provide continuous living cover, but also provide um, agricultural commodities that farmers can sell that society wants and needs, and so that is the whole vision in a nutshell of Forever Green.
0: So, I, I wanna, I, and I, again, I'm gonna say this for evergreen bioeconomy. And, and, let's put this in context of what we're currently doing, um, in our agricultural system. So, corn and soybeans dominate, uh, two annual crops cover 63% of Minnesota's 25 million farms. That's in 2021, according to U.S. Department of Agriculture. And in other states, it's even higher, 76% of farmland in Iowa, 80% in Illinois. So, we have this farm system, which evolved, and one of the – there's a lot of consequences to that farm system, nitrates in the water. Um, and But one of the things that I learned in your presentation and I also saw recently in the movie Kiss the Ground um, is, is the – Problem with not having continuous life for uh, a, a continuous cover on the land and, and the the green and the brown soil. Can, can you explain that? I don't think I did a good job on that. But the visuals are so powerful when you when you see these visuals about what we're currently what our current agriculture system does and how that fits into both the carbon cycle and all sorts of things. Can can you paint that picture for us?
1: Yeah, gladly. Exactly. <clears throat> so. Corned soybeans, as you mentioned, are uh, extremely dominant in U.S. agriculture. And um, they are fantastic, fabulous, remarkable organisms that, uh, of which I am in awe. However, they have, like any other thing, they have their limitations. And the big limitation is that they are what we call summer annual crops. In other words, they both... Uh, require relatively warm soil to be planted, and they are harvested at the end of the summer and in early fall. And so what that means is that across many tens of millions of acres in the Midwest of the United States, which, by the way, has this spectacular endowment of soil that developed in um, over tens of thousands of years or is when we had grasslands all across the Midwest, we have these fantastic soils. And um, unfortunately, these fantastic soils are not protected by a living plant for roughly two-thirds of the year. Uh, Again, over 10, you know, over 100 million acres. So this is an inherent limitation of corn and soybean crops. And this is what we are trying to... um, trying to kind of overcome in the Forever Green project by developing a bunch of crops that in various ways are compatible with our current crops. We we use the term, they play well with our current crops, but address both the big problem of not having those, um, those farmlands covered for two thirds of the year, and in fact, take advantage of water and sunlight, And warm temperatures and nutrients in the soil that are not being used by these summer annual crops. So there's both an opportunity to better protect these world class, very important soils of the Midwest of North America and to build the basic productivity of that agriculture by using all the resources that I just mentioned that are, you know, simply cannot be used by our current crops because they are not growing at, uh, you know, across the whole annual cycle. Of course, nothing grows in the the cold winter months in Minnesota, but um, the crops that we are developing survive those times and are able to grow um, into the fall and are able to begin growing early in the spring. So to use that sunlight and and water and uh, nutrients that are are in the soil. So among other things, we think of continuous living cover agriculture as being very efficient in that sense. So those resources of soil and water nutrients are being used more efficiently than the summer annual crops possibly can through, through, you know, no fault of those crops. It's just that they, they're they not growing at a time when nutrients are available in the soil, for example. So those nutrients are at high risk of being lost.
0: So we're going to take a break.
1: Crops, don't we're, lose them.
0: We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll, we'll talk more about the forever green. And and uh, on your website, there is um, testimony from lawmakers. And one of the fun things about that testimony is they were able to hand out samples. So we're talking about mm. Kernza crackers, hazelnut snackers, climate smart um, Kearns Grains. So this this whole idea yes, of switch, switching to a forever green, forever green bioeconomy and the potential of that for um, improving water quality, countering climate change, and just more fun and joyful living. So you're listening to mm. Food Freedom Radio. Um, mm. I'm Laura Headline and we'll be right back with Nick Jordan from the University of Minnesota's Forever Green program. But it's very important. So how do we switch to a forever green bioeconomy? Let's figure it out. Um, with us uh, today is um, Nick Jordan. He's a professor of agronomy and co-directs the Forever Green program. And when we went on a break, we we're talking about, and this is on your website, um, testimony at the Minnesota State Legislature. And one of the things that started with – and obviously this radio so we can't sample, but food samples. So tell us about the current products on the market right now that kind of sprung forth from this forever green approach or or bio economy. -economy.
1: Well, we are working with a number of crops that uh, there's a whole portfolio of these crops that uh, support that kind of continuous living cover agriculture that I mentioned. And yes, indeed, a number of them are um, already available in markets. So Um, we are working, first of all, to develop with, uh, other folks, uh, it's a whole broad partnership around this, to develop what is really the world's first, um, temperate zone perennial grain, at least for, um, at least for uh, non-wetland kind of situations. Of course, wild rice is a a temperate zone perennial grain. And, uh, so this is a, a crop called intermediate wheatgrass that, um, that is uh, the advanced varieties of it are referred to as kernza, and um, so it is similar to wheat. It's related to wheat and um, can be used um, in in all kinds of food products where one might uh, use wheat. So this ranges from beer to all manner of baked goods, um, breads, crackers, pasta, things like that. And um in in, in fact uh, all of those products can be had. Um, you know, I think I suspect if you googled uh kinds of products you would find all kinds of things that you could just purchase online. So um we're working, however, with a bunch of other crops as well. Um I'll mention a crop called Winter Camelina. This is uh, a so called winter hardy oil seed crop, meaning that it is um An oilseed crop is something that produces oil and protein. So soybean is the world's most famous oilseed crop at this point. But uh, that's what these winter hardy oilseed crops are as well. The deal with them is they get planted in the fall, they get harvested in the spring, and they uh, are very compatible with crops like soybean that can be planted after them. So, uh, winter camelina is very interesting because it produces a delicious and healthful oil that's very high in omega-3 fatty acids, an important nutrient that uh, a lot of people take as a supplement. It's kind of absent from our our diet. Um, Let's
0: take a break just on that because I know in uh, June of twenty June twenty fourth of twenty twenty two I had Anne Blake and David Montgomery on about what your food ate. The connections mm. are just emerging about how vital eating from healthy soil is to human health. Mm. And it, mm. there's there's a lot that there's a lot that scientists and humans just don't know about that right now. Would you agree with that statement? I mean, we're just on the cusp of learning all sorts of things about the complexity of the soil.
1: I I I certainly have an open mind about that. Um I think that um one thing that I don't think is in question is the need for us to eat a more diverse diet and more fruits and vegetables and more whole grains, things like that. And so certainly Forever Green is trying to contribute to a more healthful food system in that way. So um, I think that there are, uh, my gut feeling is that there are very interesting discoveries that lie ahead about how we can support human health through nutrition and the contribution of things grown in um, healthful soil, biologically active uh, soils from that. But um, that to some extent remains to be seen, but there's just no question that our current diet needs to be diversified in the ways that I mentioned, and we certainly are trying to support that.
0: So, um, Alexandria Griffin also testified um, in front of the state legislature about that, and she's a graduate student at the University of Minnesota, and her research is on roots and understanding what's going on in the roots. And one of the things she said is that um, our understanding of the roots is limited. So, um, but but now there's a, like a new rhizome camera that was bought, so we have some new equipment, so you mm-hmm. can really look at what is going on in the roots. And so, so tell me a little bit about some of that, um, some of that type of research?
1: Well, the, the the real frontier and horizon, Laura, in that is, uh, in my opinion, is to develop this fundamental partnership between um, microorganisms and plant roots. The way that I, I think we should think about this is we are understanding the profound relationships between the microorganisms that we carry around in our human bodies in our in our guts in particular we are understanding how many dimensions of health and well-being can be affected by that those um, um, you know the um, enormous uh, quantity and diversity of microbes that we carry around in our guts and uh, you know I think, Folks have heard the statistic that a human being um, is, uh, you know, there are, um, in in terms of the overall sort of um, individual organisms in a human being, there's a number of cells, that's the way to think about it. There's our bodily cells, and then there are way, 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 way more microbial cells. And so there's a fundamental partnership that it has really profound implications between humans and, and those onboard microbes that we have. We are finding out that that is exactly the case also with plants and their soil um, their soil microbial partners. So there's a concept called the rhizosphere, which is the little world that surrounds the plant root. And we are discovering that there are all kinds of microbial inhabitants of the rhizosphere and that these play vital roles in the health and wellness of plants and their ability to, for example, use nutrients efficiently or to create health, healthy soil um, to simply um, be able to grow well and yield well if they're crop plants. And so understanding and nurturing that partnership between plants and, um, microbes and understanding that when we look at something, uh, you know, a green thing growing in the ground and call that a plant, that's actually wrong. What we need to be thinking about is a plant and all of its microbes together as a unit, just as we have to think about us and our gut microbes as a unit. So that's, that's a really critical horizon and, um, that partnership Is always going to be limited if we only grow plants, we only have living roots in soil for um, a third of the year, as is, you know, inherently the case with our summer annual crops. So this is why it's so important to have living roots in the soil all year round.
0: Yeah, continuous living crops are vitally important in the forever green bioeconomy. So, the forever green bioeconomy has three components. In there. there's the perennials um, like Kernza. There's the winter annual crops and the native wooden woody crops. So, paint us again in this picture of what does the forever what does the forever green bioeconomy mean? Describe it.
1: <clears throat> yeah, what a great question. So. The forever green bioeconomy or an economy based on continuous living cover agriculture is absolutely based on those crops, Laura. But we also have to recognize there are all these other elements and all these other dimensions to the economy of any crop.
0: We're gonna we're gonna need no. to take a break now. We're gonna come back and we're All gonna right. do a deep dive on the economy and the economic aspects of um, making the forever green bioeconomy um, dominant in in our in our culture. So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We're talking with Nick Jordan, professor of agronomy and co-director of Forever Green Program. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture and a person hopeful about the forever green bioeconomy. And joining me now is uh, Nick Jordan. He's a professor of agronomy and co-director of the forever green. And so let's, I mean, this, so uh, perennial cultures, uh, perennial uh, forever green bioeconomy is, it holds so much, pro, uh, so much promise for uh, cleaner water, healthy soil, um, reducing our carbon, healthier food for people, but a lot of market challenges in in switching over to this system. So t- talk about those.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> so here's the the key thing I want to highlight. So any established crop has a whole support system that we have to recognize. So what that means is that um, there is a whole um R&D apparatus that does ongoing research to develop that crop. There is policy support for the crop. There is financial support for the crop that um, is uh, necessary to finance the production of the crop. There is a whole um, supporting set of infrastructure that carries the crop from the farm where it grows to a place where somebody will make something from what the crop produces. There is, a, um, um, there is um, coordination among all of those elements there. And then finally, there is market demand. So it's important to understand that every established crop has this whole support system that <clears throat> makes it a viable crop. And um, so corn has this, soybean has it, all all major crops have this, this support system. So we in the Forever Green Project have the wild ambition that we can over time build that support system for these new crops so that they can achieve um their potential. So they all play well and in various ways complement our current crops. And uh, however, they cannot achieve that. They cannot realize that potential until they have a support system like what I just described. So the thing that's tricky about that is that that support system has, you know, many different elements. We can think of it as a table with a bunch of different legs. And so um, you have to figure out some way to construct that support system that um, basically gets a bunch of different folks from different worlds to put their shoulders together in a collective project of building up that support system. So that is... um, one thing about the forever Green project that is, is very, first of all, ambitious, mm-hmm. but also really unique, uh, we, we find. So the, um, traditionally universities like the University of Minnesota, agricultural universities have always, um, had their eye on new crops, have always had their eye on, um, what, what could we potentially add? to the agriculture of say, Minnesota. And however, um, generally speaking, um, that, uh, all that work has not had a, a huge amount of impact because there has been neglect of the need to construct this support system. Um, there have been a few historical cases of new crops, such as soybean, uh which you know rose into prominence in the, the first half of the 20th century um due to some sort of historical circumstances that uh, that coincided and enabled that support system to be to be built up but generally speaking those support systems don't arise spontaneously and they and they didn't in the case of soybean either
0: mm-hmm.
1: so this requires us at the University of Minnesota us crop breeders and agronomists to get out there in the world and engage very actively. First of all, with um, farmers who constitute the base of a supply chain for any crop, obviously, and then with all of the other um, parties that are involved in supply chain and supply chain infrastructure. So that's That's transportation, that's storage, that's processing, um, that uh, sort of initial processing to make ingredients that uh, food manufacturers make. We also have to collaborate with the world of policy. It's very important for there to be supportive policy. Um, And uh, you mentioned uh, various um, activities in the legislature here in Minnesota in search of that policy. And so, um, uh, we as public employees can't really, um, our political, uh, activities are somewhat limited in scope. So we need to form alliances with groups that are allowed to advocate, advocate policies and lobby for them and things like that.
0: And, what, and
1: the it, point is that, that there's this sort of complex project of building this support system that um, isn't quick, takes a lot of patience, takes a great deal of organizing because it requires a network of collaboration. And uh, the fact that we try to do that is, um, I guess, relatively unique in the world of, uh, of um, well, we haven't talked about this, Laura, but broadly speaking, um, what Forever Green is all about is trying to bring diversity into our agriculture and food systems. And there's, you know, a lot of work on diversification, but um, we find that uh, most of it isn't really holistic enough. You know, in other words, it tends to be too focused on um, parts of that whole support structure that I'm talking about, rather than realizing that there's a complex whole, a new system that has to be built.
0: Yeah, and and humans um aren't always the best at dealing with complexity. We kind of like things nice and easy. <laughs> and so nice. actually embracing complexity is is tricky. And yet yet some of these things um once you understand the importance of continuing li- continuously living crops and the health of the soil and how that's connected to the health of each other, I think it can help move forward um a different this this um New forever green bioeconomy, and so I want to again make sure that people understand what that forever green bioeconomy is. So, so perennial grains are like kernza and the sunflower and perennial flax. You plant them in the ground and they keep going up. They they keep producing for you. So, what a big win win. However, they don't produce at the same yields in the second year or the third year, and so there are also complicating factors. So, you want to talk just about some of these new perennials and how they function in a
1: eco-agriculture system? Sure. Um, perennial agriculture is certainly a, uh, a very important, uh, horizon for us. So now here I'm talking about actual perennial crops, as you were just mentioning, Laura. So continuous living cover is, um, is, is a broader concept than perennial agriculture. If perennial agriculture is strictly about perennial crops because continuous living cover can be achieved by stringing together multiple annual crops. And that's what those winter hardy oil seeds, for example, that I mentioned before are uh, all about. So, um, there are, uh, significant areas in the Midwest where it is difficult to grow our annual crops like corn and soybean effectively. This is often because um, the land is too hilly or the land is too prone to being flooded. And these are places where um, um, corn and soybean farmers are often very well aware that they plant their crops, but they don't yield well in these particular spots and fields. And so, Um, The problem has been, what are you going to grow instead? And that is the whole point of developing perennial crops, which are very well suited to these these kinds of um, positions in a field. And and it's it's actually been estimated that something like 20% of the entire Corn Belt region of the U.S. that is currently, you know, on which we're growing corn and soybeans, is actually um, not... um, Um, places where it's possible to grow corn and soybeans profitably. And it it is also the case that those 20% of acres are places where the, um, the impact on soil and water and biodiversity is especially um, severe of, um, you know, growing these annual crops and, and their inherent limitations to growing for a third of the year and so on. So, That's why having um, a set of perennial crops is a really desirable thing. And here I do want to mention that grassland agriculture as a way of producing meat and dairy foods is a a very viable and fairly well-established form of perennial agriculture that we have right now. And um, there are... um, Issues with um, grassland agriculture for in, in grazing-based meat and dairy, um, you know, there, there's it's a complicated world, and there are no silver bullets. And um, so, grass uh, grassland agriculture for meat and dairy is limited at this point by some pretty severe supply chain problems that we have. It also, uh, at this point, produces food that's more expensive, and that there are issues associated with that. But that is a, uh, a powerful form of perennial agriculture that we can expand right now. And, and there's lots of efforts uh, to do that, and Forever Green is involved in that too. But then we have this whole other portfolio of new perennial crops. So I would mention hybrid hazelnut as a crop that is uh, being developed here in the Midwest, so, and again, Good we're going
0: gonna to take a break. We'll be back with our last segment. But I know, I mean, just in my own yard because I do perennials, and so the hazelnuts you plant them, and they're like they keep growing every year, and it's so healthy for the soil, and healthy for us, and healthy for the whole ecosystem. So, how do we make it? How, how do we birth the uh, the forever green bioeconomy? And we'll be right back. We're talking with Nick Jordan, um, the University of Minnesota's Forever Green Program. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund and we're talking with um, Nick um, Jordan. He's the professor of agronomy and co-director of Forever Green. So right now in Minnesota um, about s- over 60% of our land is pa- planted in corn and soy um, which feeds a lot of people and does awesome stuff and, and as, as you pointed out earlier is an, you know awe-inspiring plants but that also means it's not continuously covered and there's all sorts of problems with nitrogen and, and so how can we move to a Forever green bioeconomy and that means um winter grains uh, cover cropping it means perennial plants native wooded crops like hazelnuts um but birthing this system i mean well, let's let's talk just a little bit about all the ecological benefits because we really haven't covered that and um uh, so talk a little bit about the ecological benefits
1: sure well so the basic ecological benefit is the um the regeneration of soil. So we, as I've mentioned, we have this fantastic soil here in the Midwest. That soil has, um, has taken some hits over the, uh, the century plus that we've been cultivating it using, uh, you know, uh, the agriculture methods that we use. And so rebuilding that soil, which is what people generally mean by regenerative agriculture is one of the, is I would say the fundamental benefit of um, continuous living cover forever green agriculture. And um, so, you know, that occurs because it supports that partnership between plant roots and soil microbes that I mentioned before. And so it has the potential to rebuild the key things that soils need to be healthy. And uh, that the key thing is something called organic matter that uh, is the um, the part of soil that stores carbon and supports biological activity. Organic matter is also really critical because it's crucial to the structure of soil that lets it hold on to water. And um, so um, part of the problems uh, that we have with water in the Midwest is that um, we... Um, We uh, need to be able to hold onto that soil, in water in the soil um, so that it doesn't run off quickly. Um, When it runs off quickly, it causes soil erosion, it causes flooding downstream, and it carries nutrients away. So all of those things are markedly reduced by healthy soils that have lots of organic matter. Um, Those soils also manage to hold onto their nutrients better. And uh, so we get less um, – the nutrients that we need to make land fertile stay with the land and
0: are, are so I'm lost. just going to summarize some of the facts that I found on your website just because it's uh, – so by staying in place year-round, um, research from Forever Green has shown that it captures 99 percent of the nitrogen that would otherwise escape compared to annual cro- uh, corn. Um, and, and then one study found that under um, a reasonable c- of c- scenarios camellia could drive a net increase in farm profitability of about $40 an acre. And then also um, Anne, uh, who is a grain farmer from Minnesota and a, a member of the Farmers Union, she talked very personally about this when she was testifying about how you could just see that the Kernza, uh, the fields planted in Kernza um, acted like a sponge. So, so there's so yes. much in this resiliency about, you know, moving towards um, – forever green bioeconomy, um, that helps farmers, um, and yet it's to scale it up is, like you say, it's a very audacious task. So, um, did I summarize that well? You did Yeah, I thought so too. But, but so one of the things I listened to a presentation uh, from uh, that, that you did at um, uh, the Pro Social Group. Uh, I went to the attended their web webinar, and you talked there about scaling theories and how it takes both top down and bottom up to make transformation transformational change. So, mm-hmm. share a little bit about that.
1: Hmm. Well, one of the things that we know from the history of how. Major changes happened in the basic life support systems of society. So that would be energy, transportation, water, for example. We know that those systems um, tend to get locked in. So we 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 have a system and it works pretty well. And uh, however, as the world changes, society develops, we start to see issues with it. But um, uh though the existing systems, we can call them incumbents, kind of like incumbent politicians, the existing incumbent systems are very resilient to change. And for good reason. They, they work well. People have invested a lot in them, et cetera. So we know from the history of that kind of um, change in our basic life support systems that um, there are always people. That are trying to come up with something better. So, for example, um, perennial agriculture that includes continuous living cover is would be better than our current agriculture that that doesn't really have that continuous living cover. There are always people who are sort of tinkering away um, and coming up with with you know new innovations that enable that. Generally speaking, though, those innovations don't um, become significant. They don't develop that whole support structure we were talking about before, just because um, it requires sustained investment by a whole lot of different folks to uh, build that support system. So what does it take to get that sustained investment and what the history of uh, transformations in these life support systems tells us is that there has to be so-called top-down pressure. In other words, the um, powerful institutions in the world, be they political governments, be they financial institutions, be they um, influential organizations um, that are advocacy groups, for example, I would you know? Yeah, top down and, the, and
0: bottom up, and unfortunately, we're down to our last minute and a half. So I, okay. I, 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 um, I, but but I, I really, I, I really appreciated learning about that top top-down and bottom-up and working together. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. so, like, right. next week I will be at the Regenerative Agriculture Summit USA, and that's in Chicago. And, yeah, Nestle, General Mills, Cargill, all the top, top, People are there, and then also Tree Range Farms is there, and and so how we create this, this system that in in the system that honors water and soil and future generations in a vital way that can in in, in I, mean, I, I again I, I watched the movie um um uh, I'm not going to remember the name right now but
1: um Just learned, yeah
0: yeah there's so much positivity that can come out but it also feels like it's such a long road and you've been at this for 30 years so any final thoughts
1: well i've been at it for 40 years (laughs) um the final thoughts are that uh we have to understand that those major transitions in our life support systems happen suddenly it's not a linear process so um We have to understand that when there is enough top-down pressure on our dominant systems and good enough uh, alternatives, that change can actually be very rapid. That's what the history tells us.
0: Yay! (laughs) Forever green, bioeconomy, here we come. (laughs) Forever green, bioeconomy, or bust. You've been listening to Food Freedom Radio, and thank you so much. Nick Jordan with the University of Minnesota's Forever Green Program, and thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio.